0: If you want pure, perfect, and permanent judgments to come, then you want Jesus to come and judge the living and the dead. Humanity cries out for justice and judgment. We see and experience this all the time in our world. There's a, a strange feature of our society that seems to highlight our desire, our innate desire for justice and judgment. Uh, A significant segment of our society gives enormous amounts of time and attention to the latest and most popular criminal trials. Maybe, maybe millions have had their eyes fixed on the Rittenhouse trial in these last few days. This is a fascination in our society. This trial is nothing new, honestly. Uh, Before Rittenhouse it was George Zimmerman in 2013. Jody Aris in 2012, Casey Anthony in 2011, Lindsay Lohan in 2010, Phil Spector in 2009 and in 2007, O.J. Simpson in 1995, and the Menendez brothers in 1993. I'm sure that I failed to mention a dozen of other popular cases that held the attention of, of millions across the United States of America. But you get my point. There's an interest in justice and judgment in our society. There has been for a long time. And could it be... Could it be that the human heart longs for justice and judgment? And, and what might explain this? Could it be that God has written His law on each of our hearts so that we have a sense of what is right and wrong, what is just and unjust, and that this is the source of these longings? And that's the teaching of the Bible. That's the teaching of Romans chapter 2, verse 15, where we're told that God's law has been written, on our hearts. You have a sense of right and wrong in this world, a sense of justice and the need for judgment, because you've been made in God's image and made to reflect something of his character. God's law written on our hearts is the source of our discontentment with injustice that we so often see in this world. And because God's law is written on our hearts, our consciences accuse us when we ourselves have done wrong. And they even excuse us when we ourselves Have done right maybe you've even had this experience when one of these famous trials or maybe a trial that you are personally familiar with maybe one of these trials has failed to execute justice perfectly and permanently maybe you are disheartened by that you want something more you want the courts to work you want justice for all maybe you even have this experience slightly different experience when one of these trials seems to go right And the courts seem to carry out earthly justice well. Is there something in you that still eats away at you as though justice, it was not fully satisfied? Perhaps you have a nagging sense that justice in this life can never be pure, perfect, or permanent, and is always in some degree or another partial or polluted or incomplete. There is only one judge who perfectly sees all of the crimes, sees all of the evidence, and has a plan to see pure, perfect, and permanent justice and judgment carried out. And that is God himself. If you want justice to come, then you want Jesus to come. Friends, this is the subject. This subject of justice and judgment is actually one of the core truths of the Christian faith. As as strange as it may seem, Christians have always viewed the return of Jesus and His judgment as an essential element of the Christian faith. So, what is it that we believe about Jesus and His coming in judgment? What does it mean that we believe He will come to judge the living and the dead, as we just confessed a few moments ago? That's what I hope to unpack for us as we drop back in to our occasional doctrinal study through the Apostles' Creed. Ordinarily, we're working our way through a book of the Bible, the book of Acts now, but we're pausing to think about these core truths of the Christian faith. And it's my prayer that this study on the judgment of Jesus will lead us not only to take refuge in Jesus Christ for salvation, from God's judgment, but that it would help us to honor Jesus while we wait for His judgment. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, we're we'll going to be looking at verses 31 to 46. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 831. The Apostles' Creed has been used by Christians to confess our faith in the Triune God, as Dan explained, for nearly 1,800 years. To be sure, the Apostles' Creed was not so much written by Jesus' apostles as it was written to explain the teaching of Jesus' apostles, to summarize their teaching. The goal was to put into words a succinct summation of the Christian faith. You know, in its earliest form, the Apostles' Creed emerged as a list of questions for candidates for baptism. Those who were entering into the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would be asked a question about God. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And they would respond, I believe. This question and answer format of the Apostles' Creed was used by a pastor in Rome named Hippolytus as early as 215 A.D. The creed was refined throughout the years, and it likely reached its final form sometime around the 7th century. And so today, as we look at those words, from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead, what we're really going to do is examine the the biblical underpinnings of that phrase. In other words, I'm not preaching the creed, I'm going to be preaching the Bible that the creed is seeking to summarize. That's why we'll look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, and other important passages which teach teach us about Jesus' return in judgment and its implications. So, So here's how we're going to unpack that phrase from, thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. We're simply going to ask some questions and see what the Bible has to say about it. We'll ask a variation of those famous questions, who, what, where, when, why, and how. We'll ask, who will come to judge? We'll ask, why will he come to judge? Whom will he come to judge? How will he come to judge? And when will he come to judge? You should be able to find a fairly lengthy uh, outline provided there in your bulletin. It'll have a number of scripture passages that I'm going to refer to. I probably won't read all of them. But I would encourage you to take that and maybe study through some of those scripture passages later today or later this week. But let's begin with our first question. Who will come to judge? Who will come to judge? The, The passage that we're about to read in full, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46 answers that question right away who will come to judge just look at the first few words of verse 31 there you see it when the son of man comes in his glory just pause there you see the answer to the question it's the son of man who will come to judge in his glory Jesus tells us there in verse 31 and and since we're kind of dropping into Matthew's gospel kind of toward the end of Matthew's gospel it's important for us to remember what what this gospel is about Matthew's Gospel is all about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's hopes. How Jesus is the expected and anticipated Messiah, Savior, King, and Judge. And even that phrase that Jesus uses there is rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where this messianic figure has dominion over all things. And he's referred to as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is coming. And so Jesus, as we can see here, he understands himself. To be that son of man. And here in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is in the middle of a a lengthy section. There are five large blocks of teaching from Jesus. In Matthew's gospel. This is one of the last. If not the last. The Olivet Discourse it's known as. And we're, we're dropping into the very last section. Of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He has been talking about how he's going to come. How his disciples should live in light of his coming. And here we get Jesus talking about. How he will judge the world. At the end of time. We're going to see that the goal of this section of Jesus' teaching is to clearly communicate that Jesus will come, He will sit on His throne, He will judge the faithful and the faithless. So let's read that whole section now, now that we know what we're looking at here. Let's begin in verse 31. I'll read through verse 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, Who will come to judge? Jesus. Jesus will come to judge. He tells us this himself. But who is this Jesus? And why does He have the right to judge? As both the Bible and the Creed teach us, Jesus is the righteous substitute, the risen Savior and the ruling Sovereign. Jesus is the the righteous substitute concerning His righteousness. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He did what was required of Him by God's law. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience. In John chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me. The Apostle Paul confirmed Jesus' righteous obedience in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, when he told us that Jesus was obedient to the point of death. There was not a single point in his life where he disobeyed. Jesus was sinless where we have been sinful. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, tells us that Jesus was without sin because he was perfectly righteous he is perfectly qualified to judge in righteousness he understands the standard he lived it he internalized it he honored his father he can judge on principles of righteousness Jesus righteousness and his sinlessness is also part of what qualifies him to be our substitute to be the one who could stand in our place and bear the punishment, the justice and judgment that is due to our sin. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read, For our sake He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what was taking place on the cross. Jesus was the substitute for sinners. Just like that lamb under the sacrificial system in the Old Testament who would die for the sins of the people of Israel, yes, Jesus was the substitute for sinners. That's why John the Baptist proclaimed that when Jesus arrived, here is the Lamb of God who comes to take the sin, take away the sin of the world. Creed, it has summarized all of this biblical teaching for us in an earlier line, which says Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And the one who will come to judge is the righteous substitute. Who died for sinners like you and me. But he is also, as the Bible teaches, the risen Savior. As you can see from the Creed, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. That's what we confessed earlier. This is the plain teaching of the Bible from the resurrection accounts in each of the four Gospels. That Jesus got up from the dead on the third day. The Apostle Paul identifies his resurrection as a matter of first importance in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 3 and 4, it is this risen Savior, the one who not only suffered the judgment due to sinners, but who also conquered sin and death, who will return as judge. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, he said, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, the son Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus is the risen Savior who has been given authority to execute judgment. Jesus is the righteous substitute. He's the risen Savior. He is also, even now, the reigning Sovereign. That's what we thought about the last time we studied the Apostles' Creed together. We unpacked that idea that Jesus ascended to heaven, that He sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we remembered that Jesus did not just return to heaven to rest, but to rule. As Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He is even now the ruling sovereign. This is the one who comes to judge, Jesus. He's the righteous substitute, the risen Savior, and the ruling sovereign. Is He your righteous substitute? Is He your risen Savior? Is He your ruling sovereign? Those questions are important because our relationship to the judge will make all the difference when he comes in judgment. If we have received this righteous substitute, this risen Savior and this ruling sovereign, then we will be received into his glorious eternal kingdom. But, as we will learn through our study, if we have rejected this judge, if we have rejected his substitutionary death for us, then we must bear the judgment for our own sins. See, either Jesus bore our judgment or we will bear the judgment for our sins. If we have rejected His resurrection from the grave, then we have rejected the offer of forgiveness of sins. And if we have rejected His sovereign rule, then we will face His recompense for our rebellion. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I urge you to turn from your sins And to trust in Jesus. Believe that He lived for you the righteous life that you have not lived. That I have not lived. That nobody but Him has lived. Believe that He died bearing the judgment that's due to your sins. And that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Friend, I'd encourage you to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus. Talk with the friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Or come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news that Jesus can rescue you from the judgment to come, so that when He returns, you're not afraid of His judgment, but that you delight in Him and are longing to be brought into His glorious kingdom. We know who will come to judge Jesus. But now we're led to ask, why? Why will He come to judge? This is the second question we want to answer. And there are several answers to this question. Why will Jesus come to judge? because justice and righteousness demand it. And we all know this intuitively, don't we? God, He is holy, He is just, He is good, and He will not allow wickedness and evil to go unpunished. Not a single wrong that has ever occurred in this world will ever escape the justice and judgment of God. He is a judge who will not allow any sin to slip through the cracks. He is a judge who cannot be bribed. His wrath will answer the demand of judgment. He will play no favorites. The prophet Nahum. In Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 writes. That the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Friends Jesus judgment is certain. In our foundational text in Matthew chapter 25 verse 31. Do you see it there? You'll notice that Jesus says it's not a matter of if. But when the son of man comes in his glory. Justice and righteousness demanded and so Jesus will come and deliver it. Jesus will come to judge because judgment has been entrusted to him. Again, John chapter 5 verse 27 says that Jesus has been given authority to execute judgment. And Jesus is not one to shirk his duties. He is faithful to execute them. Because judgment has been entrusted to Jesus, we don't have to take judgment and justice into our own hands. In fact, In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it tells us this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. One day God will right all wrongs. And one of the things that parents should teach their children is not to steal authority. Right? It's not their responsibility to carry out judgment and discipline on their siblings. That responsibility... Has been entrusted to mom and dad and the sphere of the household. Similarly, others may wrong us in this world, but vigilante justice is not justified. Instead, we must leave judgment to the proper authorities in this world, and ultimately, we must leave it with the Lord Jesus. He will one day right all wrongs because judgment has been entrusted to him. Jesus will also come to judge because he longs to reward his people. This This line in the creed is not meant to invoke fear and dread in God's people, but joy and delight. Do you see Matthew chapter 25, verse 46? The last few words there. Jesus wishes to reward His people with eternal life. The wicked will receive recompense, but the righteous will receive reward. In the words of Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, Jesus is eager to say to His people, Christian, Jesus is eager to say to you, Enter into the joy of your master. What was it that Jesus said in John 14, 3? He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is why the Christian does not fear Jesus' return in judgment, but longs for it. Christian, do you long for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus. He will return in judgment. Not only to gather us to Himself, but also because that is when we will be transformed into His glorious likeness. He has promised to make us more like Himself. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christian, on the last day, Jesus is going to return and he's going to give you a body that can never be afflicted by disease, decay, depravity, or death ever again. He has promised to transform you and reward you with a glorious body. Christian, part of Jesus' motivation for judgment is to bring you to his side and to beautify you in glory. We've hinted at the answer to our next question. Whom will he judge? But let's go ahead and be perfectly clear about it now. Whom will Jesus judge? The simple answer to this question is everyone. To use the words of the creed, the living and the dead. Take a look at what Jesus says in verse 32. You see verse 32 there in Matthew 25. When Jesus sits on his throne for judgment, before him will be gathered some? No. All. All the nations. We get a similar and sobering statement from John's Revelation. Listen to what Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. There is not a single person who has ever lived who will escape the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will judge everyone. But the Bible. And the creed specifies further that both the living and the dead will be judged. What what, what does that mean? It means that everyone who is alive on earth at the time of Jesus' coming will face his judgment. And it means that all those who have died before his coming will face his judgment. The the creed is actually simply lifting up language from the Bible in this language of uh, judging the living and the dead. So in, in the midst of charging Timothy to be a faithful pastor who preaches the word in season and out of season. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. See if you can hear the language of the creed. I charge you, Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. You hear how the, the creed is just lifting that language straight from the Bible. And Jesus himself said this, that he's going to raise the dead to, to judge them. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, he said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Not a single person anywhere on the face of this earth will escape the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, you cannot hide. Your only choices at the coming of the Lord Jesus are to bow in punishment or to bow in praise. In Philippians chapter 2, Verses 9 to 11, Paul says this, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on Him the the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The redeemed and the reprobate, the righteous and the wicked, will all one day bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. If they will not bow in praise, then they will be made to bow in punishment. Because Jesus really is Lord. And the rightful recognition of His rule will not be refused. How? How will He come to judge on the last day? That's the next question we want to answer. How will He come to judge? Take a look at verse 31 of our text again. It points us in the right direction. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. How will He come to judge? He will come to judge in the fullness of His glory and with His angels. And He will sit, what? On His what throne? His glorious throne. What a majestic and marvelous sight it will be to see Christ come. Luke chapter 9 Verse 26 says that Jesus will come in His glory and the glory of the fathers and of the holy angels. He will come in glorious fullness. If you remember back to our studies in the book of Acts, you'll remember that during Jesus' ascension, He was lifted up in glory. A cloud took Him out of the sight of the disciples. And that's when two men in white robes appeared and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Jesus, he, he ascended into heaven in a glorious fashion, personally, visibly, and physically. And He will return in the same glorious fashion. The glorious fullness of His return will be personal, visible, and physical. As we've already read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, every eye shall see him. We won't see a mirage, we'll see the God-man, Christ Jesus. We will see him and behold him in the fullness of his glory. How will he come to judge? He will come to judge in the fullness of his glory and he will come to judge with a glorious finality. Friends, brothers and sisters, the judgment of Jesus Christ will fix forever the state of men and women in heaven or hell, based upon principles of righteousness. If you were to look up above our passage, just a few verses, then you would see in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 12, you would see this parable that Jesus tells, or the parable of the ten virgins. It announces the finality of Jesus' judgment. The ten virgins they were to they were to keep watch for the coming of the bridegroom. Some were wise, and some were foolish. The wise were prepared. But the foolish were slothful and slumber. The bridegroom came and he collected the wise virgins and he gathered them into the marriage feast of the Lamb. But the foolish virgins were shut out of the marriage feast. The door was closed. They were not allowed to enter. They cried at the door in verse 11 of Matthew 25. Lord, Lord, open to us. But Jesus soberly answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. The door is closed. It's closed forever. They are shut out forever. There is a glorious finality to Jesus' judgment. When He returns to judge, He will fix forever the final state of men and women in heaven or hell. And I should be quick to usher into this, that when He judges in that final form, it will be faultless. It will be without error. It will be perfectly righteous. The psalmist in Psalm ninety-six, thirteen, tells us that when he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness. His justice and judgment will not be like the justice and judgment we so often see in our lives and in our world, mixed with sin and error and unrighteousness. But Jesus' judgment will be perfectly pure. And it will be permanent. Since he was free of all sin, so his judgment will be free of all sin. And because there is a glorious finality to Jesus' judgment, the mission to tell others the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can escape the wrath to come, that there is a rescue, that there is redemption from that judgment, we need to tell more and more people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look again at that last kind of verse in our passage, Matthew chapter 25 verse 46. Do you see it there? Jesus makes plain that there are only two possible outcomes for everyone who faces this judgment. There's either eternal punishment or there's eternal life. As I said, these destinies are eternally fixed. The wicked will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous will go away into eternal um, life. They will either eternally endure punishment or eternally enjoy. God's presence. And we must be clear, the eternal punishment in view is that of eternal self-conscious torment. Jesus does not mean that the souls of the wicked will be annihilated and cease to exist. No, He means that they will bear His judgment and wrath forever and ever and ever. He holds the outcome of of his judgment in parallel did you notice that so however long the righteous get to enjoy eternal life is the same length of time that the wicked will endure the burden of the wrath of God and so we read in Revelation chapter 14 verses 10 and 11 one of the most sobering passages in the Bible that those who have rebelled against God will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. The fact that the wicked are judged and never have any rest from judgment reveals that hell, the place of final judgment, is the place of eternal self-conscious torment. Now, honestly, friends, this is where many have strenuous objections against the Bible and against the Bible's teaching. How can a temporal offense and sin against God on earth warrant an eternal punishment in hell? Maybe that's even your question right now. Here, here's the answer. An eternal punishment is warranted because we have sinned against the eternal God. An eternal punishment is warranted because we have sinned against the eternal God. The punishment must fit the crime. And since we have sinned against an eternally glorious God, we deserve to face an eternally gloomy judgment. From this is why I said earlier that your relationship to the judge is all important. It determines your judgment. The reason the righteous escape the penalty of eternal punishment is not because they have done enough good deeds to save themselves. No, the reason that the righteous are righteous is because they've received Jesus' work on their behalf. The reason the righteous escape is because Jesus has borne their punishment and judgment on the cross. Their judgment is complete. You see that judgment that is to take place on the last day. It has been brought forward in time for God's people and laid upon Jesus on the cross. So that there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friend, you need to rest your whole hope on Jesus. And that He was judged for you. Or else you will bear the eternal wrath of God. The reason the righteous escape is because they place their faith in the righteous substitute. Either we believe that Jesus received the punishment due to our sins. Or we will receive the punishment ourselves. As we believe in Jesus, we receive all that he has done and won for us. And that means we receive his righteousness because we believe he received received our punishment on the cross. The cross, you see, was that great place of exchange, right? Jesus, he received our eternal punishment and we received his eternal reward. So have you received Jesus? Have you believed upon him for your salvation? Do you love him because he first loved you? and gave his life for you on the cross and was raised from the grave. A friends, turned from your sin and trust in him. There is no hope apart from Jesus, but there is endless eternal hope and joy in Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, as you've read this text, right? Mike, but doesn't the text, especially in verses 35 to 44, doesn't it talk about the difference between the righteous and the wicked as revealed through good deeds? That's right. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is revealed, it's disclosed, it's made plain through good deeds. Especially those good deeds done in love towards Jesus' people. Notice verse 40 that says, Jesus is talking, you did it to the le- one of the least of these my brothers. Jesus is talking about his people. In other words, the, the righteous ministered to and served Jesus' family, the church. Jesus so identifies with His people. He so identifies with His family. He so identifies with His church that He understands He was being ministered to and served. Our love for each other as a church family shows that we belong to the Savior who first loved us. However, those who do not show love to Jesus' people show that they did not love Jesus. That They show that they don't actually know the savior and judge when you know and love a person you know and love the people he knows and loves love for God's people is evidence it is the fruit of their salvation but it's not the reason or the root of their salvation first John chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 puts it like this beloved let us love one another for love is from God And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. The wicked will be judged and punished for their lack of love for God. And this is disclosed in their lack of love for God's people. At the same time, the righteous will be judged and acquitted in light of their love for God. Which is disclosed in their love for God's people. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Not through our works, but true faith. It will work itself out in love. Jesus, He will come to judge because righteousness demands it. He will judge everyone, everywhere. He will come to judge in the fullness, in His glorious fullness and finality. But when, when, when will He come to judge? And I promise to disappoint you in the answer to this question. When will he come to judge? He will come to judge at the right time. That's what I tell my kids whenever we're going somewhere or something is about to happen. When is this going to happen, Dad? At the right time. When are we going to have dessert? At the right time. Uh, When are we going to get there? At the right time. It's a great answer to many questions as a parent. But the Bible teaches us that he will come to judge at the appointed time. He will come to judge at the time that's already fixed in God the Father's calendar. That's what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. Verses 30 and 31. Listen to these verses. Listen closely. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Friend, hear that. God has commanded you to repent. And if you do not repent, if you do not turn away from your sin, you are disobeying the God who made you. God, he has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Paul goes on to say, because why? Why has God commanded all men everywhere to repent? because he has fixed a day the day is fixed he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed Well, who is this man? Paul tells us and of this he has given assurance to us by raising him from the dead who's the man that's going to come on that appointed and fixed day? it is Jesus Christ and the only proper response to this truth is to repent of our sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ God has given us assurance that this will happen. No one should be left in doubt. Judgment is coming. Jesus is coming. We know that because His resurrection has happened. But Jesus also tells us in chapter 24, so if you flip forward a chapter or flip back a chapter to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, you'll see that Jesus says that no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. And that means... You should ignore all, and let me underscore all, you should ignore all silly speculation concerning the day and the time of the day of the Lord. No one knows the time. Jesus is exceedingly explicit about this. But we do know how we are supposed to spend our time while we wait for Christ's return. God has informed us how we are to live. Jesus has told us how we're to be prepared. So here are five points of application for our lives from this doctrine concerning Jesus' return. Number one, we should give ourselves to worshiping our righteous substitute, our risen Savior, our ruling sovereign. I know that I throw these verses at you all the time, but listen again to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25. For the call to worship in light of the day of the Lord Jesus' return drawing near. And if the writer of the Hebrews could say that the day of Jesus was returning, it is drawing near, then how much closer are we to that day now? Hebrews 10 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, As the day of Christ's return draws near, we need to meet together more and not less. We need to meet together for worship, for fellowship, for encouragement. Gathering with the Lord's people on the Lord's day helps to prepare us for the day of the Lord. Let me say that again. Gathering with the Lord's people on the Lord's day helps us to prepare for the day of the Lord. Don't choose the lesser things. Choose the greater things. Choose to worship Christ on the Lord's day, if at all possible. Here's application number two. Work. Work until Jesus comes. That doesn't mean you you can't retire at some point in the future. But rather, it means that we shouldn't be idle. If you know why Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, then you know that some Christians misunderstood the Bible's teaching on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that led them to idleness. They, They weren't working. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, Paul admonished that congregation to keep away from those who had grown idle, those who had stopped working, those who were no longer busy, but they were busy bodies. He encouraged them to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Since we do not know the day or the hour, we need to do our duty of working, of earning a living, of, of making a home, providing for ourselves, for our families, and for the members of our church family. Who are either financially distressed or physically incapable of working. Working is one way to honor God and to love your neighbor and to serve them. Beloved, let us be worthy of the wages we are paid. Don't rob your employer of your working hours by spending time on social media, sports blogs, news sites, or other ventures that might distract you from work. Work and be worthy of the wages you are paid. Since our region Is not generally prone to idleness, but to making an idol of worshiping work. Let me say this. Don't overwork either. Yes, you should work and be faithful, but don't overwork either. Yes, you have a duty to work, to be worthy of the wage you're paid, but you have other duties as well. To serve the Lord Jesus Christ and those whom He's entrusted to you to have relationships with, like your family or children you need to disciple. Don't overwork. But work faithfully and for the glory of God. Here's application number three. Witness. Witness. Since Jesus' judgment will be full and faultless and final. We need to witness to his saving power. We need to evangelize. Something of this is actually depicted in the parable of the talents. In Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 to 30. In that parable the master entrusts resources and treasure to his servants. In his house. And he departs and he goes on a journey and one day he's going to come back just like Jesus will come back it was his property that he entrusted to his servants it was his treasure and they were to put it to work that's what faithfulness to the master looked like two of the servants they put their treasure to work and they multiplied and he joyfully received them and rewarded them with a warm welcome when he returned one servant however was faithless in fear he did nothing with that treasure that was entrusted to him that servant was cast into eternal punishment for his wickedness and his faithlessness. Brothers and sisters, until Christ returns, we are to be faithful with the treasure of his gospel. We are to be sharing it and praying that he multiplies it for his glory's sake. We need to be planting it, not in fields, but in our hearts and in the hearts of men and women and children all around us. We need to be seeing it multiply for the glory of God. In the words of Jude 23, let us save others by snatching them from the fire. Tell someone about Jesus this week. Go to Thanksgiving and make it awkward. Tell them that you are thankful to God for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He has done for you in laying down His life and paying for all of your sins and being raised from the grave. Give thanks to God in the presence of others for the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. Lead others, invite others to cast their lives upon Jesus. Invite them to exchange the dread of judgment for the delight of seeing Jesus return. Worship, work, witness, and wait. Cultivate a heart that longs for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, we need to be on guard against worldliness. And we need to be longing for that world that is to come. Listen to what James says in James chapter 5 verses 7 and 8. He writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. If James could say that the coming of the Lord is at hand in the first century, it is at hand in this century. Waiting, believing, and trusting that Jesus said He will come is an act of of faith. And as you wait, remember how soul satisfying it will be to see your Savior appear. I mean, as we as we sang, we're not going to gaze at glory, but we're going to gaze at Christ. On his pierced hand. He is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Does, does your soul long for his appearing? Paul says this in Titus Chapter 2, he says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Beloved, do not grow weary in good works or in waiting for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will come and he will take you to himself. Keep trusting. Keep waiting. And while you wait, watch and pray. Worship, work, witness, wait, watch and pray. This is the fifth and final application from this doctrine. This was one of Jesus' most common encouragements to his disciples as he was talking about his return. Listen to what he said in Luke 21. Luke 21 verses 34 to 36, Jesus said, But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Dear Christian, don't be so overwhelmed by the cares of this life that you're not looking forward to the life that is to come. For it will all, it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you might have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Beloved, you are going to stand before the Son of Man. Watch your life. Don't be overcome by the cares of this life. Care about the life to come, and look for Christ to come. Pray for the strength to live unto the glory of Jesus until His glory appears. But don't just pray for faithfulness unto Christ until you die. Pray for the return of Christ while you live. This is what the Apostle John teaches at the very end of the Bible. The end, the very last chapter. In Revelation 22, when Jesus says to John, Surely I am coming soon. What's John's immediate reply? It's the last prayer in the Bible. Surely I am coming soon. John prays, Come, Lord Jesus. It's the final prayer of the Bible. And we might be wise to make it the first prayer we offer each day. Brothers and sisters, let us make this our daily prayer. Let us pray, come Lord Jesus. If that prayer is distant from your lips, you might love this world just a bit too much. And your longing for the other one might not be large enough. Pray, come Lord Jesus. Pray, come, let let nothing hold you back. Come in judgment. We long to see the face of the one who loved and lived and laid down his life for us and was lifted up from us. Pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come, righteous substitute. Come, risen Savior. Come, ruling sovereign. Why? Because justice and righteousness demand it. If you want justice to come, then you want Jesus to come. So pray, come because we want you to right all wrongs. Come to rescue your people and to repay the wicked. Come so every eye will see you in your glory. Come so every knee will bow and worship you. Come so every land will know that you are Lord. Come in the fullness of your glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us give ourselves to praying that daily. And let us give ourselves to praying that now. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for these very great and precious promises from your word. But we look forward to the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The one who has fully paid for all of our sins. He will come to gather us to his side. Like a a husband comes to gather his wife and hold her close. Father, we, we look forward to that day when Jesus will come for us. And bring us to himself. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. Father, until that day, help us to worship, to work to witness, to watch and pray as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.